Clark Gable kisses Bugs Bunny. In Wait. the fanfic you wrote? <laughs> no, he, he kisses Groucho Marx, I just remembered. In the Warner Brothers Hollywood Steps Out cartoon. I thought it had Bugs Bunny in it, but it doesn't. Can you smell toast right now? Or you... <laughs> Have you ever seen Hollywood Steps Out? No. Oh, it's really funny. And at the end, Clark Gable, he's like kind of chasing, all the way through the, the cartoon, he's chasing this like skirt. And then right at the end, she takes her mask off and she's scratching marks and Clark Gable kisses her anyway. Because he was up for it with anybody, including Groucho Marx. He was a bisexual, which means he has sex every other year. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. George Formby over here is Daniel. Oh, this is a softball. George Foreman over there. <laughs> Uh, for for those who don't know, George Formby was a sort of, would you call him a novelty act? Yes, he, he's, he had very a sort emphatically. Of first half of the 20th century with his little ukulele. So we don't have technically any letters, but we, we do have a recommendation today. This is from Darren over on Facebook, who I went to high school with. He recommended Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago because he seemed to be a fan of our Crime and Punishment episode mm. and would like to keep going on the Russian lit front. And the Siberian exile front. Uh, well, Darren, I, I hate to tell you, bud, but we are never going to do that. But I hope that today's Russian literature might satisfy some element of that. Sort of Russian, sort of yeah. Russian literature. Also, by way of an announcement, I just want to remind everyone that we at Aston University are opening up a new MA English program in 2023, so please do apply. It's particularly geared for teachers of English as well, so if you're an English teacher in the Midlands area, uh, this might be a really great program for you, and maybe Daniel and I will end up teaching you. <laughs> we also have been putting up some polls on Twitter for our potential season four. We decided that if we do that in 2023, we're going to let the audience pick one of the texts we do. So we have, a, we have a bit of a tournament bracket, and every week we put up a different pair that you can vote on. So we've only just started. Please go over to Twitter and vote. Vote early and often. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what is our text today, Daniel? We're in America. World War Two has just finished. And we've come out on top. Oh, and what'd you know? Oh my gosh, we were the goodies. Where are you from? Somewhere. Every town, USA. Exactly, yeah. Time to enjoy the just desserts of victory, unparalleled wealth, power, and productivity. Time to build a wholesome world of suburbs. White, definitely white, picket fences, <laughs> Bakelite radios, massive Studebaker cars, and huge walk-in fridges. You know, you can hide from a nuclear blast in them. No, no, we don't. We don't bring up Indiana Jones 4. Sorry. Anyway. I have one rule. I have one fucking rule. I'm so sorry. I saw the most charming families of my generation fulfilled by barbiturates, diet pills, sports jackets, and taffeta dresses. There's nothing alienating or predatory or slightly creepy about it. I assure you, 
Don't let today's book suggest otherwise, which is Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov, written in 1955. So it goes without saying we are about to spoil this book for you. The trigger warnings, murder, lots and lots of child molestation. That's what this book is about. So if that's not your cup of tea, please turn this off. Date rape, statutory rape, all the types of rape, pretty much. Ageism, abusive relationships, homophobia, lots of pregnancy, death and childbirth stuff car accidents, and heart attacks. Would you like to do some background? Yes, please. Vladimir Nabokov. Okay. Oh, you're mad because yeah, Ali Pitts cross. Yeah. said People that... Yeah, making fun of my Russian accent. Ali, tell us, how's, is his yeah. accent improving? <laughs> um, you hurt his little baby feelings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Vladimir Nabokov, Russian aristocrat. Don't hold that against him, though. Born in 1899. He and his family emigrated from Russia after the October Revolution in 1917. And uh, Nabokov, you know, while he was in exile in Germany and France, became a Russian-language poet and writer. The Nabokovs fled to America in 1940 after the Germans invaded France, where Vladimir worked as a comparative literature lecturer. You could just walk into the job like that back then, couldn't you? And entomologist. So he was a bit of an interdisciplinary guy. Insects and... Um, comparative. Li- Have you ever heard his poems translated from Butterfly? They're beautiful. Uh, very good. Nabokov had learned English from his governess back in Russia. That's so, lucky. Yeah. So upon moving to America, he started writing English language works, including Panin, Pale Fire, and Lolita. So yeah, Nabokov's works, they're sort of playful, experimental, elusive. There's a lot of that in Lolita, wordplay and jokes and stuff. He kind of like, he's obviously building on the modernism, the, the high modernism of the 1910s and 20s. Equally though, I think we could probably say that he's one of the first postmodern novelists. There's a lot of pastiche and intertextuality, a lot of references to high culture, but also like mass culture, isn't there? So Lolita has loads of advertising slogans, popular music, film, various kind of institutional discourses like psychoanalysis from the 40s and 50s. There's also a lot of black humour, isn't there, which I think is more of a postmodern thing than a modernist thing. Oh yeah, this is a very, I mean, it's a comedy, but it's the darkest possible yeah. comedy. <laughs> Playing up the sort of general banality of the post-war world, I think, uh, and its cruelty and whatever. So yeah. Yeah, I think that's kind of, what, those are some of the ways that you can maybe differentiate postmodernism mm-hmm. from modernism. Experimental, but in a kind of slightly more jaded and also self-conscious way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we also had some caveats about, I, I know from especially looking up the, the Goodreads, which we'll do later, a lot of people really struggled with this book because they had a hard time divorcing the fact that it's about a pedophile mm. from how the book is written so just the fact that there's pedophilia in it people were like no i'm out which is fair enough if yeah. that's if that's not for you but a lot of people were like oh no this book is bad because it's morally bad and i think a lot of people sort of took it at face value that nabokov was sympathizing mm. with a pedophile which he's really really not our main character humbert who's writing this it's all told through his perspective he's a very like strange and unpleasant guy but he's trying so hard to charm you mm. and convince you that he's the victim to groom you right well yeah i think that's that's a great reading of that and a lot of people are like oh this guy just made my skin crawl i'm like yeah he's he's supposed, supposed to. to yeah that's what the book's about yeah. he's, a, he's a compulsive liar and an unreliable narrator who is trying to charm you and nabokov is making him fall short of that and that's the whole point it's about the the mental gymnastics and the psychological profile of the pedophile it's not really sympathizing what i found interesting as well and i only learned this today so it's not in your copy Ooh, fresh off the press Novikov actually used to refer to humbert humbert as my lewis carroll Novikov was obsessed with lewis carroll the guy who wrote alice in wonderland lewis carroll for those who 
don't know has a big big question mark over him about if he was a pedophile mm. or not because he used to the the little girl i think it's alice liddell i think is her name he used to uh, photograph her and her sisters naked but with their mother's consent there, there's like mm. there's like a question mark over yeah. what was going on was it a total innocent art project sort of deal is it that sort of victorian sexual self-obliviousness type thing if you know what I mean. I feel like that's some of the, something the thing claims people make. That's cool, though. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of wordplay in this, so it's a lot well, like Lewis Carroll. All right. Are you ready? Okay. The book begins with a preface, doesn't it? I skipped the preface initially. Don't do that. It's part of the book. It's not just a preface. <laughs> I, I had a go at you, Rose. Yeah. You, you missed a, quite a key yeah, detail in I the did, preface. Yeah, yeah. It's written by a psychiatrist, isn't it? And it tells us that it was written by somebody who was in prison who died while awaiting his trial. He gave himself a fake name in the story, Humbert Humbert, and originally titled it Lolita or the Confession of a White Widowed Male. Why Humbert Humbert? Is it because it's a dorky name and it's sort of seemingly harmless? You is just it, talk about it. Is it sort of a duality thing? Like, why would you choose such a dweeby name for yourself? I don't know. He talks about it, doesn't he, at the end? Maybe yeah. we could get onto that later. But okay. He, the, starting with the title, that's actually a really good place to start because he says that the book is titled Lolita or the Confessions of a White Widowed Male. The book itself, in its published form, isn't actually subtitled that. It's just called Lolita, mm. which is really interesting that there's already this discrepancy, this sort of unreliable narration. Yeah. This is such a complex entry into their relationship where he's sort of giving her primacy. She has more of an identity. He doesn't even have a name in that title. He uses a fake name, you know, all this stuff. And yet she has no voice whatsoever in this. This is only ever told through his perspective. Mm. So he's like, no, she holds all the power, but she doesn't in practice. But it's strange that the psychiatrist who published it would remove him completely even more from the title. Mm -hmm. The way that the book has been packaged sympathizes with Humbert's view. Well, yes. It's bought in, buys into Humbert's. Well, language. especially because this, this psychologist editor then says, oh, Lolita Hayes isn't her real name. Um, so, you know, we're, we're trying to protect her identity. But then he gives clues, so many clues that seemingly point to her real name. And I'm like, that's a gross institutional abuse of power and a lack of confidentiality. Mm. Also, we should just remember that Humbert's in jail for murder, isn't he? We know that from the beginning. We don't know who he's murdered, but that's why he's there. If you've read it more than once, this opening bit becomes a lot more important. Yes, that's important to say. Yeah, I, I, I would uh... actually, if you read this book, do yourself a huge favor and go back and read this editor's preface again. And I think that's going to really clarify a lot of issues. It really should have come at the end, but it's so much more intriguing yeah, coming at the that's, beginning. That's your postmodern thing. Oh, right? I yeah, know. Yeah, yeah my, my jaw dropped and it stayed dropped. We then start on the book properly and a very famous opening line, quote, Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins. As somebody who absolutely hates the word loins mm -hmm. this is a, that's a that's disgusting i hate it whenever it's quoted then humbert humbert our narrator reveals that okay he's a murderer and a pedophile so guys you have to excuse my florid writing style you know i'm, I'm a thinking man's kevin spacey mm -hmm. um he then gives us his european backstory his whole like uh, idyllic swiss childhood and i am getting very dr evil vibes my father was a relentlessly self-improving boulangerie owner from Belgium with low-grade narcolepsy and a penchant for buggery. My mother was a 15-year-old French prostitute named Chloe with webbed feet. My father would womanize, he would drink, 
he would make outrageous claims like he invented the question mark. It reads <laughs> almost yeah, identically similar, like yeah. that. It's in the sense that it feels, although Nabokov is European, it feels like a very much like an American parody of the European I know. world. Of like grand hotels and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah. Also, yeah, Humbert's Swiss, isn't he? So he's like one of our first Swiss people for a while after Frankenstein and Colbrand. From Colbrand. From, from Pamela. Colbrand, Colbrand. Um, no. Richard Gailoff wanted to go to Switzerland. Which I think tells us all we need to know. There we go. Yeah. So but, we're, we're very anti-Swiss. Yeah, I think get the creepy Alpon in right now for, <laughs> for creepy Swiss character alone. Oh no, we have a lovely colleague who's from Switzerland. Who? Annie. They know all about. <laughs> oh. Okay. So Humbert has his first sexual experiences with Annabelle, the daughter of a family friend, when they're both around age 13. So she spends the summer there, they fall in love, it's very sweet, they keep trying to do adult stuff, but you know, they're, they're just kids, they kinda can't really make it happen. They barely even kiss, but boy are they randy. Now on the last day of summer, right before Annabelle has to leave, they finally get up the courage to have sex. But they're interrupted by some old sailors kind of jeering and mm. cheering them along. So they, they part ways before they can do anything. And then he learns, tragically, Annabelle has died of typhus mm. about four months later. Which will in no way psychologically impact him. Humbert grows up. He goes to university. While Humbert's in Paris at the university, he starts to notice some of the young girls in the area, and we have this bit. This is, this is his major thesis of the book, right? So this comes quite early on. You can tell that he was a college student writing this, because he's writing his dissertation on the nymphette. Yeah, give it, give it 65, probably. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Now, I wish to introduce the following idea. Between the age limits of 9 and 14, there occur maidens who, to certain bewitched travellers, twice or many times older than they, reveal their true nature, which is not human, but nymphic, that is, demoniac. Uh, and these chosen creatures I propose to designate as nymphets. You don't need to designate things, you're not the Linnaeus of perverts. No, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry! I mean, so, i.e., there are some girls who have some X quality to them that makes them appear much older in character, if not in physical appearance, and they're very beguiling, and it takes a special man, a man of genius, to recognize one. Oh, I was wrong. He's the Aristotle of perverts. We're getting into sort of nymphette essentialism here. Okay, all right, all right, I'm on board. I'm back on board. Great. He, he kind of blames them for their guile, and uh, but he also praises himself for being able to identify the nymph. So. Yeah, so here we go. He's fully developed into Humbert Humbert, human restraining order. Carry on. He tries, when, when he was a young man, he tried to sh shrug off this kind of preference uh, by going to therapy. Yay! Get, yeah, get therapy. He did, but it didn't work. Oh. So he rationalizes this by looking at, you know, by saying that the law is arbitrary and stupid and that, you know, many great artists, Dante, Petrarch, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, <laughs> fell in love with young girls. So Humbert says like, oh, I hope girls like that never grow up. So it, there's a kind of Peter Pan thing going on as well. He starts hiring an underage sex worker named Monique and this is the first time he really gets what he wants. Unfortunately, Monique is growing up before his very eyes and in the span of just a few dates, she's already too old, 15 to 16. He becomes disillusioned. 
I think that was appropriate in that context. <laughs> okay. keep, keep that in. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll keep the siren in. Thank you, siren. Yeah, so he's massively disillusioned by all of this, but thankfully... That's sad, isn't it? Yeah, follow your dream. You cannot keep a good pedo down because <laughs> he, he picks himself up and decides, you know what, I'm going to get married. Aww. Now, he tells us there's... There's no difficulty in this at all because you know what? I'm actually terribly, terribly good looking. So mm -hmm, we're, we're gonna put in some sort of unreliable narrator klaxon here. Please. I don't believe for a goddamn minute that he's as good looking as he says. I kind of seemed you was. You are such an innocent. <laughs> oh yeah, my I god. Always, he seduced you. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. Unreliable narrator klaxon almost defeats the, uh, which I like about it, defeats the subtleties of the unreliable. <laughs> but we're, we're, that's the point of this podcast, so we're going ahead with it. So he he marries a woman named Valeria because she reminds him of a little girl, despite the fact that she's in her late 20s. But the marriage is almost immediately a damp squib. She ends up cheating on him. They decide to get divorced, and he's like, you know what, that's it, I'm going to pack it in, I'm going to America. Humbert. I'm not on first name terms, that's his surname. Humbert. That's a good joke, actually. <laughs> Moves to, I just came over right then. Moves to New England. Checks out a lodging situation with a 35-year-old widow named Mrs. Hayes. Hmm, surely, if you're nasty. Mrs. Hayes is a poor lady in her middle 30s. She had a shiny forehead, plucked eyebrows, and quite simple but not unattractive features of a type that may be defined as a weak solution of Marlena Dietrich. That's, that's not me, that's Humber who says that. Uh, she's a kind of tedious middle-class type, and Humber is convinced that she's going to try and seduce him. He's really not feeling the living situation when he goes to look around her lodgings, and is about to leave until Mrs. Hayes takes him into the backyard. That's uh, not a euphemism. <laughs> no. She literally shows him their back garden. Yeah. Then, without the least warning, a blue sea wave swelled under my heart, and from a mat in a pool of sun, half-naked, kneeling, turning about on her knees, there was my Riviera love peering at me over dark glasses. So, Mrs. Hayes has a young daughter who looks a lot like Annabelle. Her name is Dolores, but she's called Lolita. And he, and he turns to Mrs. Hayes and is like, wow, crazy thing, I am just in love with this house! Yeah. So he moves in and instantly starts perving on Lolita. He gets very horrible about the mother, calling her fat and focine, aka like a seal. Yeah, focine. And he starts keeping a diary of his innermost thoughts. Here the book kind of turns into an epistolary novel through his diary entries. Do you want to remind us what epistolary means? Do I ever? <laughs> it means a... well, I suppose... The whole book is kind of like this, isn't it? A text that's very consciously composed of documents. Usually letters, mm -hmm. but it could be like diary entries and stuff. Here's what he says. I'm like one of those inflated pale spiders you see in old gardens, sitting in the middle of a luminous web and giving little jerks to this or that strand. My web is spread all over the house as I listen from my chair where I sit like a wily wizard. So. Another unreliable narrator klaxon of him trying to sell himself as this grandmaster. I'm like, you're just in a small house. Yeah. You can hear things. You're not Machiavelli yeah, over exactly. here. Yeah, it's hardly Machiavelli. So in one of the creepier moments, when Lolita's mother is out of the house one day, uh, it's creepy and kind of funny, mostly creepy, I think. Uh, Lolita gets something in her eye, and Umber helps her fish it out, and he says that in Switzerland they do this by having someone lick your eyeball. Absolutely fucking not. No, yeah. I am pulling the plug on this episode that is disgusting. That is the nastiest goddamn thing I've ever heard. Well, Lolita says, sure, whatever. And the passage is so weird that Humber even starts to refer to himself in the third person. Yeah, dude, I'd want to distance myself from this situation as, as much as possible. Yeah. I'm just sitting here going, Novikov, you have parents. 
Yeah, 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 I always think that, yeah. So Mrs. Hayes complains about her kid a lot, who's just in full preteen rebellion. You know, they fight all the time. She's like, I gave birth to you, you ingrate. And Lolita's like, yeah, well, that was once. What have you done for me lately? Yeah. And uh, Mrs. Hayes thinks that Humber, you know, the only other adult in the house, can be a real confidant here. You know, she can she can bitch about her kid and he'll get it. But he is quietly smitten with Lolita and secretly loathes Mrs. Hayes. And he even finds Lolita's gross teenage behavior endearing. So he comments quite a lot that her hygiene is pretty bad. She needs to wash her hair a lot more, apparently. So one day, all three of them are in the car. They've gone on a shopping trip. And Lolita, who's sort of up front with the two, sitting up front and the two of them in the way those sort of like 1940s and 50s cars were. They were just one giant seat with like no seatbelts. She ends up holding Humbert's hand while he's driving. And he weirdly doesn't comment on what this means. So we as the audience are like, is she coming on to him? Is she growing fond of him as a father figure? Is she just happy to have an ally against her mother with whom she'd just been bickering? He doesn't really speculate, which I I think, again, is really important for such an unreliable narrator. He just lets this sit. Mm. With no, and it's, it's just a weird moment that he says nothing about it. Except yeah, there's a lot of omission, isn't there? Yeah. Like, did this even actually happen, or is this some sort of weird fantasy? And there's another moment where he's on the couch, and she sort of stretches out next to him and puts her legs in his lap and he just makes a real fucking meal out of that moment though and so i think this book is really good about you know obsession and extending these little moments and overthinking them and turning them over and over in your memory yeah well I, he he writes that bit with them on the couch in such a um crazily oblique and high poetical way that i had no idea what was going on i had to explain i'm like they're just sitting on the couch and yeah. she puts her legs in his lap like, yeah well when i read it i was like it seems like nothing really has happened here but it's been written in such kind of crazy yeah kind of non-euclidean ecstasy <laughs> i suppose that's that's humbert so humbert starts fantasizing about disaster striking and killing off mrs hayes leaving him with Lolita alone. Yeah, that's how that works when, you know, a mother dies, you just get left with a random lodger. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's the other way around. Mrs. Hayes can't stand her bratty daughter any longer, so Lolita is going to be sent to a summer camp. A nice farm upstate. Uh, and he's going to be left alone with Mrs. Hayes, who is definitely, she's got her eye on him. Not on his tongue, just on him. Um, <laughs> so he's particularly upset. Because he knows his time with Lolita while she's still a nympha is short. She's going to be 13 soon. The morning she's to leave for camp, Lolita rushes back upstairs to hug and kiss. In a kind of Question ambiguous mark. way. Yeah, or at least Humber makes it seem ambiguous. Him goodbye. Before her mother drives her all the way out to the country. So after they leave, the maid gives Humber a note, which he initially thinks is going to be from Lolita, doesn't he? But it's from Mrs. Hayes. The note confesses that she's in love with him, and he has two options. Either pack up and get out if he doesn't love her, or if he's still at home by the time she gets back, then that means he loves her as much as she loves him, and they'll get married, and he can be a father to Lolita. Fucking landlords, man. That's, yeah. I don't want to ever side with the pedo, but that's a slightly ridiculous... Landlord and pedo. Where, who, <laughs> yeah. who will be in the deeper choose, of hell? Yeah, yeah, choose your fighter. So, obviously he needs to keep Lolita in his orbit, obviously. So he stays. New daddy just dropped then, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Letters um, overblown, funny, sad. So, in many ways, Mrs. Hayes and Humbert are quite similar figures, aren't they? They have kind of quite similar overwrought prose styles. They're both a bit pathetic and weird and repulsive in their own ways. But, but, 
I'm going to stick in an unreliable narrator klaxon here. Are we sure, first of all, that she wrote this to him at all? What? I mean, it's very possible that he seduced her and is just telling us a totally different story. Part of me, I don't know that he didn't orchestrate this all to stay with Lolita. And even if she did write it to him, it seems so much in his voice. And he says he's trying to remember yeah, years later as much, of, as much of this as he can from memory. So it's just, again, his voice taking over as usual, and we're getting none of the women's authentic voices here. I'm afraid to say that I think we're going to have to have the unreliable narrator Claxon blow in all the way through. <laughs> so Humbert and Mrs. Hayes get married very hastily before Lolita's even back from camp. The, the prefab I have here is, congratulations to the bride and groomer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Humbert struggles, though, to uh, perform, so he has to drink a lot of pineapple juice and take a lot of vitamins. I did not know that my Flintstones chewable had the power to give people climaxes, but you learn something new every day. Mrs. Hayes, who's now Mrs. Humbert, she's just completely adoring and it's kind of grotesque, and he puts on a good act of tolerating her until she reveals, actually, Lolita's not coming home at the end of summer. She's not coming home at all. I've arranged it so we can be alone as newlyweds. Lolita, she, you know, she can fuck off straight from camp to a boarding school. No. She'll stay there until college five years later. We never even have to see her again. If she were a woman with any sort of class, she would realize that shipping the kid off to boarding school is a stepmother's job, not a real mother's job. Yeah. This woman is fucking trash. It's an upside down story, isn't it? That the stepfather doesn't want her to go to boarding school and the yeah. actual mother does. So Humber, unsurprisingly, he has to hide his true reaction to this, but he does not take it well and he contemplates drowning his new wife in the lake where they often go on day trips but he just can't quite bring himself to do it so instead he just turns really cold with his new wife and he says she's emasculating him by making all of the decisions in reality you know it's obviously just the one decision he objects to but because she is a complete bungalow of a woman nothing upstairs yeah. um, <laughs> She can't see what's really obvious, you know, sort of how he acted when Lolita was home, how desperate he is to get her back. Like, a as a mother, she should be a lot more suspicious of this. He also terrifyingly starts experimenting with drugs to knock out his wife and eventually to knock out Lolita when she comes back. The wife is the practice. So, yeah, the yeah. wife is the practice, but he's going to do it to both of them so he can molest Lolita when she's sleeping with no worries about interruptions. One day, Humbert comes into the room to see his wife crying. What happened? She's rifled around in the locked desk where he keeps his diary, and she's read every creepy thing he's ever written about her daughter, and every cruel thing he's ever written about her. Presumably she got like a dictionary out. After <laughs> that, she started crying. She kicks him out of the house, and he tries to pass it off as him writing a novel and just, you know, plugging her and her daughter's names in there as placeholders. That is the worst, it's not what it looks like, that I have ever heard. Yeah, I know. He goes to make her a drink in another room, and is talking to her, trying to gaslight her, but she won't respond. Then the telephone rings. Uh, when he answers, it's a man saying, Mr. Humbert, your wife's just been hit by a car and is dead. He's like, ridiculous, my wife is right here, but she's not. While he was talking, she ran out of the house and in a peak of emotion didn't notice an oncoming car. She's dead and Humbert is now Lolita's sole guardian. Mrs. Hayes' discovery died with her. 
so it'd be good for Humbert, I think. Yeah, I mean, well, hell, I had a great time with her last moments. Aren't we having fun, everybody? Yeah. This is, in fairness, though, this is a bit like, it's like, you know, in Psycho, where the famous bit where he tries to, Norma Bates tries to sink the car, and there's a moment where it seems like it's not going to work, and we all go, <gasps> and then we become complicit. Mm-hmm. This is like that as well. You're like, oh, great, that's good. You know, like, yeah. it does make you feel like... Nice and tidy, yeah. Yeah, yeah excellent stuff. So, he buries his wife with minimal fuss, brush your hands off, doot, doot, goodbye. Mm-hmm. And he tells the neighbors, you know, he's, he's going to go get his daughter and they'll move somewhere else for a fresh start. Oh, his heart is just so broken. Then we find out he has only been living there for ten weeks. Ten. Now, Daniel, I'm not a numbers guy, so could you let me know if that is a long time or if we are just, you know, hurtling ahead at warp speed here? Um, measuring worth <laughs> says that 10 weeks in 1947 is equal to... So he makes the long drive up to the camp where Lolita is, and he's like, I, don't tell her in advance. You know, he, he lets the camp director know, but he's like, you know, I'll break it to her gently. And then he starts properly freaking out about how to proceed. So he kind of sublimates his, like, you know, mental episode by stopping off and going on a bit of a shopping spree and very awkwardly buying lots and lots of clothes for Lolita. So I just picture him there in this department store going, uh, just gonna grab a handful of training bras for, uh, the wife. (laughs) Let's read that bit about when he's in the shop. Okay. There is a touch of the mythological and the enchanted in those large stores where, according to ads, a career girl can get a complete desk-to-date wardrobe, and where little sister can dream of the day when her wool jersey will make the boys in the back row of the classroom drool. (laughs) Life-size plastic figures of snub-nosed children with dun-coloured, greenish, brown-dotted, fawnish faces floated around me. I realised I was the only shopper in that rather eerie place where I moved about fish-like in a glaucous aquarium. So That's there, great. Yeah, it's great. And also just the kind of creepy banality of America in the 50s. It, you you know, get a real 40s. outsider's perspective of America in parts like this. I know you were saying there was a bit where it's almost an outsider's perspective of a European childhood, mm. but... He, well, I mean, Novikov is sort of an outsider everywhere he goes, isn't he? This is a satirical device, though. Yes. I mean, that sort of spe- stereoscopic vision where both sides are, show the weirdness of the other. Yes. Also, it just kind of shows how sort of vaguely pedophilic the culture already was. You know what yes, I mean? yes. Yeah. Th- those adverts yeah. are already sexualizing yeah. young girls, yeah. you know, and yeah, exactly. Takes one to know one. <laughs> yeah. is the message of this book, I, I think. think. I think that's yeah. a, a really good point. He's able to shop for her because he knows her clothing sizes after stealing one of Lolita's mother's Know Your Child books. And Daniel wrote here, um, this is a bit of pedo humor because there's that sort of unintentional biblical double meaning. To know someone biblically means to have sex with them, so know your child. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pedo. Yeah. And it's funny at the moment, but <laughs> in this context, it feels weird. To <laughs> but it's it's one of those books where you record uh, the measurements of your kid, which apparently the mother had been doing right up till Lolita left for camp. So Humbert now knows her bust, waist, hip, and thigh size. Mm. <laughs> Humber, when he picks, he gets to the camp, when he picks Lolita up, there's already, already a little um, bit of a seed of doubt that she's got too old. Twelve? Twelve? Yeah. What, she's, she's already depreciating in value like she's a car he won on The Price is Right? Again, objectifying. But the doubt quickly fades. She's back to being perfect in his eyes. Oh, honey, I, I don't know how to break it to you, Humber, but she's not perfect, as, as you're about to find out. Yeah, poor old Humber, yeah. The, the prefab I have here is, he thinks she's a 10, but she's just two five stacked under a trench coat. Yeah, 
that also sounds like an age thing. Um, <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Oh no! He tells her that her mother is ill and she might need to have a serious operation. And so, you know, the idea is that he's going to break the news to her gently. Oh, what? Her mother's gone to a beautiful farm upstate. Exactly. Yeah. And. Lolita even starts calling Humbert dad, but in a kind of slightly ironical teenage way. He doesn't tell us, the reader, if he likes her calling him this or not. So that's kind of an interesting bit. Yeah, there, again, there's a there's an unreliable narrator klaxon, because he's... The one time you'd sort of expect him to comment on this, and he's being very quiet about it. There's a lot of ambiguities, um, and he's I think he's weirdly distant from the reader sometimes. Like, sometimes he confesses the grossest, darkest stuff to us, mm. and then sometimes he, like... It's incredibly withholding. He doesn't mind when it's a product of his mind, but when somebody else does something, even if it seems like it could be an overture, he seems alienated by it. Yes. He's not turned on when it's not, you know, purely domineering. So, Lolita kisses him hello, and even though it's sexually charged, even Humbert says it's an innocent child's display of affection, and he fears kissing her too intensely, lest she shrink back. Clack's in there, this this kiss is weird, he's like reading it and rereading yeah. it. You had a point here about the whole kind of, you know, we've already talked about it a bit, but the whole the kind of various nuances of how much is true and how much is Humbert's like kind of interpreting it that way. Yeah, so he as a sort of narrator keeps telling us that, you know, oh, Lolita's sort of sexually mature beyond her years, she knows what she's doing, and then he rose back on that quite a lot between her being a totally innocent child. But I, I think this is interesting because this is exactly the sort of mental gymnastics that a pedophile would use to rationalize the behavior to himself. Like, that's mm. why this book is really good. Because it doesn't sympathize with Humbert, but it's striving, I think, to portray the really messed up psychology of the pedophile. Yeah. Sometimes I think he has, like, flat-out breaks with reality in this. There, there are so many times where I'm like... Did that really happen, or is that just the perfect thing you wished would happen, and in memory you're sort of filling in the blanks? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do know what you mean. Like, something's always off. So, as they're in the car driving to their hotel, Lolita, who still does not know that her mother is dead, says, Wouldn't mother be absolutely mad if she found out we were lovers? I feel like I need gum when I... Oh, I hate gum. It's vulgar, no, I believe I like you've gum. said. Yeah, it is vulgar, yeah. um, uh, Lolita says... Wouldn't mother be absolutely mad if she found out we were lovers? And Humbert says, don't talk like that. And Lolita goes, but we are lovers, aren't we? And then he's the demurring one saying, not, not that I know of. And this is the most unreliable narration mm. I've ever heard. Um, he even starts referring to himself in the third person again in this section. So he and Lolita have this weird, flirty, antagonistic back and forth. They go to their hotel and then they decide to go to dinner. Humbert brings out this vial of these beautiful purple pills, and he's like, oh, these are just vitamins. These are, these are the drugs that he's going to knock out Lolita with. And Lolita's like, oh, they're so pretty. Can I try one? So he takes her up to the room, and while he's waiting for her to, you know, fully fall asleep to make sure she's really out, he kind of needs to psych himself up. So he goes down to the bar, and some weird guy strikes up a conversation with him. This whole bit is great, isn't it? With him, like, nervously walking around the hotel. Um, carry on, sorry. Do you want to be Humbert, or do you want to be the weirdo? <laughs> there's a, you know, because they're both Yeah, pretty. I know, yeah, I know. Uh, and also, um, I'll be the weirdo, please. Okay. Where the devil did you get her? I beg your pardon? I said, the weather's getting better. Oh, seems so. Who's the lassie? M my daughter. You lie, she's not. 
Beg your pardon? I said July was hot. <laughs> Either, well, like, this section is so weird. Either Humbert's guilt is getting the better of him, or someone knows something's up and is trying to mess with him. Whatever this happens, the scene sort of, like, fizzles out. And eventually, when Humbert assumes that Lolita's properly unconscious, he goes back up to the room. Only, Lolita isn't properly out. Hmm? What? Turns out the sleeping pills were only very mild sedatives and don't actually have a strong effect. No. This is, I know, I'm sorry you gotta postpone your child molestation, dude. This is why you don't get your drugs on Craigslist. Mm -hmm. Humber... <laughs> oh my god, you're so excited for this. <laughs> Ooh, I'm all of a flutter. Uh, Humbert has a terrible night, and here's this very long quote that I enjoyed. There was nothing louder than an American hotel. And mind you, this was supposed to be a quiet, cozy, old-fashioned, homey place. Gracious living and all that stuff. The clatter of the elevator's gate, some 20 yards northeast of my head, which is clearly perceived as if it were inside my left temple, alternated with the banging and booming of the machine's various evolutions and lasted well beyond midnight. When that stopped, a toilet immediately north of my cerebellum took over. It was a manly, energetic, deep-throated toilet, and it was used many times. Then someone in a southern direction was extravagantly sick, almost coughing out his life with liquor, and his toilet descended like a veritable Niagara immediately beyond our bathroom. Oh, I love all this stuff. It's like Swift, isn't it? This yeah. It is, actually. Yeah, yeah it is. He's, he's really uh, working overtime here. I thought that the toilet thing, I thought that was a spoof on Niagara Falls as a popular honeymoon destination. The sort of first night scene, but it's grotesque and loud someone and, and, and stuff, someone yeah. Yeah, vomiting in the next room. American tourism is one of the main subjects of this novel, isn't it? So it would make yeah. sense that the grotesquerie of the body and those other two. Anyway, then a shocking statement. Humbert says he thought after his initial failure that it would take years to properly groom Lolita. But after she sleeps off what little sedative is in her system, quote, by six she was wide awake and by 6.15 we were technically lovers. <gasps> I'm going to tell you something very strange. It was she who seduced me. No, sorry, nope. She is a child? Yeah. You are not some sort of willless sex toy set to chaos mode. <laughs> in short, he's in bed, nuzzling all up on her, and she tells him about this childish kissing and sex games that she played with the kids at camp, and Humbert kind of feigns being a virgin, doesn't he? So she's like, oh, I'll show you the game we played, and the idea is that they had some kind of sex, or did some kind of sex thing. So, uh, t let me get this straight. So, to seduce a 12-year-old, he actually went... How does it go? Milk, milk, lemonade? I'm just not <laughs> getting it. You've just got to show me. So, they've done the deed, and the only merciful thing I can say is we don't have to see it. So they leave the hotel the next morning, and Lolita seems totally fine until they get into the car. Then she says, quote, You chump, you revolting creature. I was a daisy fresh girl, and look what you've done to me. I ought to call the police and tell them you raped me. Oh, you dirty, dirty old man. But Humbert can't tell if she's joking or not, and we can't tell if Humbert's recollection is even correct. And even if it were, why would he tell us this? Mm. It's a confessional narrative, though, as well. Yeah. He does often talk about how he considers himself a dirty old man. So Humbert uses this awkward moment to tell Lolita that her mother is dead, and we don't get her reaction at all. He completely skips over what she does or says in that moment. 
The only thing he says is, quote, in the gay town of Leppingville, I bought her four books of comics, a box of candy, a box of sanitary pads, two Cokes, a manicure set, a travel clock with a luminous dial, a ring with real topaz, a tennis racket, roller skates with white high shoes, field glasses, a portable radio set, chewing gum, a transparent raincoat, sunglasses, some more garments. At the hotel, we had separate rooms, but in the middle of the night, she came sobbing into mine, and we made it up very gently. You see, she had absolutely nowhere else to go. I can't imagine the clerk at the Leppingville Macy's being like, well, what brings y'all to Leppingville? And he's just like, bribery for pedophilia. Mm. Like, what? You too? <laughs> Part two. <laughs> the novel's got two parts. We're on a road trip. The book yeah. changes quite a lot after this, doesn't it? Yeah. It turns to a proper like, road movie yeah. after this. Humber and Lolita, they just spend their time driving around aimlessly from place to place, living out of hotels and their car. Humber quickly learns that, surprise, surprise, preteens can be obnoxious, bored, moody, stupid, unsophisticated, and messy. Lolita is a bit of a brat. Um, she also buys a lot of tat and other things that don't rhyme. She, and he says that she's the perfect consumer. And we get quite a prolonged period of him realizing that his like perfect dream girl doesn't actually exist. You know, she's not real. She's just a mirage brought on by his yeah. extreme thirst. When Lily is difficult, Humbert controls her by threatening to take her to boring places or by saying that if she tells anyone, he'll go to jail and she'll end up the ward of the state in a sort of grim orphanage. Wait, so he threatens to take her to boring places as opposed to the Leppingville Motor Court? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what's so funny about that. It's very nice, actually. Humbert tries to teach her French and Latin and stuff, but she resists. And at this point, he starts to sympathize with his late wife, doesn't he? He's uh, like, yeah, I understand you. She is kind of an idiot, yeah. isn't she? Um, he, I also really love the bit um, where he talks about how unsophisticated she is and how it drives him nuts, and especially all the shitty music she makes him listen oh, yeah, to yeah. in the car. I was just thinking, if Lolita lived today, she'd be the sort of person who preferred the Glee cover of every song. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, you're right. Ugh. They do this for a year. And we get a whole kind of sightseeing montage across these great states united. But Humbert's starting to get jealous. Lolita's growing up and attracting attention from other men. Mechanics, bellboys, trash. Um, including two gangling golden-haired high school uglies, all muscles and gonorrhea. So, what another of the many funny lines in the book. <laughs> I th but I think that goes to show as well how the sort of culture sexualizes young girls. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, because she is only 13 here, and already adult men are starting to recognize yeah. her now as like a... You know, Humbert just got in there a little bit earlier, but really like the whole culture... He does say that, doesn't he? Yeah. He says that in certain states this would be legal and... Oh, I'm not... I'm certainly not excusing it, but no, I'm no, saying no, that no, it's... Exactly. Yeah, he yeah. is a reflection back on how the culture... No, I know is, you're not excusing it, yeah. but I'm saying that his excuses have a germ of truth even if mm. they, they still don't excuse him. There's this funny bit when they uh, talk about looking at car accidents. They would silently stare with other motorists and their children at some smashed blood bespattered car with a young woman's shoe in the ditch and Lolita says, that was the exact type of moccasin I was trying to describe to that jerk in the store. <laughs> so Lolita's quite a funny character when she does get to talk. She's very funny. Mm. Um, just sort of the callousness of youth yeah. I think he captures really well. Yeah, yeah. So we get a much more of a languid look at their lives, but eventually Humbert realizes that Lolita is beginning to be properly revolted by him. She barely hides her disgust. She's like, you're old, your willy is rubbish. Um, they, yeah. 
Humbert struggles to figure out what he should do. Does he settle Lolita down somewhere so she can get educated and be less insipid? Or does he wait it out until she's too old for him, around 15 or so, and then he can just ditch her? You know, classic dilemma. Mm -hmm. Or there's a third option. Should he marry her? and hope that they have a daughter who he can molest one day. Um, and he even, when he starts going down that train of thought, he even fantasizes about being a creepy granddad with a Lolita the Third. Sir, are you trying to unlock a video game achievement? <laughs> <laughs> they finally settle down somewhere, purely because constant joyriding in hotels were getting too expensive. Oh, look, it's the return of your friend of mine, Measuring Worth. <laughs> Humbert very roughly calculates that he's spent $10,000 dues uh, on the w tour. Why are you Australian? It's, I don't know. Absolutely not. Try again. Humbert very roughly calculates that he spent $10,000. I don't know what that was. Uh, Humbert very roughly calculates that he spent $10,000 on the tour. So we got Measuring Worth State Stab, State Side Edition. <laughs> You said states out of dish on your hair? From New Orleans. <laughs> um, Is this the point where we're going to find out that you've just. I've got no, that, that you've been suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning? Yeah, right, yeah, maybe. So, if you want to compare the value of $10,000 in 1948, there are the three options. You'll, you know, we all know them. Sing along if you know it at home. The real <laughs> price of that commodity. So, you know, just in terms of inflation, $113,000 today. The labor value of that commodity, so in terms of wages, $219,000. That's a lot of money. Income value. Why have I said there were three choices? There's four. <laughs> Income value of that commodity, $370,000. Whoa, that's a lot. So that's like a portion of your sort of wealth. Finally, economic share of that commodity. $838,000. He spent a lot of money. $10,000. i am sorry, I put myself to sleep in self-defense. Right. Took, took any purple pills. <laughs> okay, anyway. So that was fun, wasn't it? A bit of stateside measuring worth. Fun for who? I'm not sure. So, Lolita is enrolled in Beardsley School for Girls. No boys better sniff around. And it sounds like a sort of really crap, sort of weird private school. It has a kind of funny pedagogy. The headmistress says, We're not so much concerned, Mr. Humbird, with having our students become bookworms or to be able to reel off the capitals of Europe, which nobody knows anybody, anyway, or learn by heart the dates of forgotten battles. What we are concerned with is the adjustment of the child to group life. This is why we stress the four Ds. Dramatics, dance, debating, and dating. Um, <laughs> well, Lolita's got nothing but Ds in school up to this point. I hear continuity is good for kids. Bleh. And then she says that L Lolita's young dating life is similar to a boy's ability to form business connections. So it's very sort of mid-century again. So Humber just f***ing hates this school, but he has found a bit of a silver lining. It's right across the road from the house they've rented where there's a big gap in the school fence and he can sit there all day with binoculars and not only keep an eye on Lolita, but also perv on some of the other young girls. The prefab I have here is he is the Chuck Berry of Jimmy Stewart's. That is a very yeah, specific um, 1950s joke. Right, a convoluted one. Uh, but I like it. No, but I like convolution. Yeah. <laughs> it did not pass the Daniel test. No, no, I like that, yeah. <laughs> when he looks bored and off to the side and unlaughingly, unsmilingly says, No, I liked that, it really. No, that joke, <laughs> the joke's not a laugher, but it is funny. You know okay. what I mean? All right. It, it tickles me brain, not my funny bone. 
The actual funny part is that as soon as he enrolls her in the school, some workmen patch up the fence so he can't see anything anyway. Lolita starts extorting Humbert financially, demanding an increase in her allowance in addition to all these gifts that he buys her in exchange for sexual and romantic access. And Humbert soon realizes that she's saving up her money and stashing it all around the house. And he fears that despite how incredibly stupid she is, she's gonna realize soon just how little money it would take for her to run away from him. She's got access to measuring words. You don't even need it. You know how much you've got at the time that you're alive, surely. So he starts controlling her social life a lot more, too. Quote, absolutely forbidden were dates, single or double or triple. The next step being, of course, mass orgy. <laughs> uh, Lolita rebels against this, too, of course. And she starts sneaking out with boys, or so Humbert suspects. That's the her sneaking out with boys thing. It's like... We have so many of these like funny parallels with mm -hmm. conventional family life, mm -hmm. but in this kind of horrible, sordid yeah. way. Or parallels to what he did to her mother as well. There are so many like things that Lolita ends up mm. scamming oh, replicating him, that, replicating yeah. with him the way he was replicating that with yeah. her mother. Lolita gets cast in the school play, and she loves it. Apparently, the author of the play. It's hard to say, isn't it? Claire Quilty. Claire Quilty. Uh, Claire Quilty is a man. Claire Quilty. Like the Claire on Fleabag that dates her sister Claire. Oh yeah, the Finnish Claire. Yeah, it's like that Finnish Claire. He's, so he's the player, right? He's been to one of the rehearsals and he thought Lolita was great. What do you think her audition speech was? Do you think it was the Dr. Evil, my dad adventure question? <laughs> <laughs> Dramatic yeah, yeah. monologue? Things start go well, going well for them. Humbert gives Lolita a little bit more freedom. She starts taking piano lessons and being really cheerful, except then he gets a phone call saying that she's missed the last few piano lessons. He starts getting suspicious about the play rehearsals. This blows up into a huge and violent fight where Humbert nearly breaks Lolita's wrist and he says he'll yank her out of school and take her back on the road if she doesn't stop. She says she'll sleep with the first man who asks her and is convinced that Humbert murdered her mother. So in this big awful fight, she manages to get out of the house safely and bike off. And Humbert sort of loses her in the city. He drives around. Eventually he finds her in town in a phone booth. And she hangs up and says, I'm trying to reach you at home, dad. I definitely wasn't calling someone else. And he kind of buys it. I mean, Humbert, arch manipulator, can't see through this. Like, is, are his batteries getting mm. low? But Lolita says, I've made a decision. You're right, I do want to leave school. I want to go back on the road with you and have it just be the two of us again. But this time, I want a say in, in where we go and what we do. And he's like, great, we'll go anywhere. And when they get home, Lolita is, she says like, oh, I'm so happy that I'm feeling kind of romantic. Hey, will you take me upstairs? And he is so happy about this that he sex cries. If somebody did that to me, I'd be like, well, this was fun, but I gotta get up early in the morning. They pack up and head west. Everything seems to be going well, although Humbert wonders sometimes if Lolita is managing to sneak off when he isn't looking to do something. Yeah, and the ghost of Mrs. Hayes is like, uh, physician, heal thyself. Uh, but he doesn't know what she's up to, and he has no proof. Then we find out that Humbert has brought a gun with them, Nabokov's gun. Um, <laughs> it's never a good addition, is it? He starts to kind of get a bit paranoid, doesn't he? Uh, and is possibly hallucinating a red convertible that might be following them as they travel through the Midwest. Can I read my prefab? Please. Well, Missouri loves company. Blech. Very good. 
Is Lolita drugging his liquor, he wonders. Is the car real? Who could be following them? A private detective, maybe, hired by someone who's grown suspicious of them. One day he stops for gas, and then, no. One day he stops for petrol, and when he goes inside to pay for it, he comes out to see the man in the red convertible has stopped and is talking very seriously with Lolita. Most of all, they seem quite familiar with one another. But how? When confronted, Lolita says he was just asking them for directions. Humber is convinced the guy is a cop or a private detective on their tail and tells Lolita never to talk to him again. They're pursued for days, but finally manage to lose their guy. So one day they get a flat tire and Humbert gets out to fix it. As he's doing that, he sees the red convertible following them again. He decides to confront the guy. But as he approaches the oncoming car, he sees Lolita jump into the driver's seat of their car and try to drive off. So this this young asshole Tokyo drifting her way down the road at three miles an hour with a flat tire. He manages to get back in the car and she's like, Dad, you just forgot to put on the emergency brake and the car started moving on its own. I was just stopping it. Like, okay, all right, sweetheart. So the man in the convertible drives off. And Humber is like, right, I need to start carrying a gun around in my pocket. It's not enough to be in my suitcase anymore. Then things take a, a quite a dark turn. Lolita gets really sick and has a very bad fever. Humber sort of examines her in their hotel room. And oh, <laughs> this mm. bit, he <laughs> declares... Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> just reading it. <laughs> I, know, I know, he declares her uvula, the little dangly thing at the back of your throat, quote, one of the gems of her body what and he says and this has a bunch of question marks for me he says quote her brown rose tasted of blood what the fuck does that mean is he is he licking her butthole what is that or is he talking about like her mouth because mouths are often described as roses and maybe she's like ill so it's brown i'm being very hopeful um... here yeah, that's awful, isn't it, when you've got to hope that he's kissing her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The moral of the story is Lolita has to go to the hospital, and Humbert realizes this is the first time he's been without her in two years, and he's kind of at a loss for what to do. And I mean, you could just, you could drink a nice whiskey and listen to something other than Perry Como for once, but that's uh, just me. Lolita's there for a few days getting better, and when Humbert comes to collect her, the doctors tell her that she's already been released. Ooh, what? Into the custody of her uncle oh who could that be i wonder yeah, yeah. Uh, the man in the red convertible is this fake uncle and he took her humbert has a bit of a breakdown and vows to pursue them he realizes that lolita planned their trip in conjunction with this guy which is how he was able to follow them so easily she left him for what <laughs> humbert's able to follow their trail slightly by looking at hotel records the guy has very distinctive handwriting but he always registers in like these kind of names that have like kind of clever clever literary jokes that only Humbert would get and, and so like finally we're, Humbert's getting a taste of his own medicine isn't he because we've had to withstand all of his like wordplay and literary jokes so you know screw him it's probably the worst thing he's ever done um so eventually he loses their trail and never picks it back up Lolita is gone and he's not gonna hear anything about her for three whole years in the meantime, he takes up with a 30-year-old alcoholic named Rita. Quote, We cruised together for two dim years, from summer 1950 to summer 1952, and she was the sweetest, simplest, gentlest, dumbest Rita imaginable. Thank you? 
Um, Finally, he's in a kind of normal, healthy relationship. I know. I'm like, actually, yeah, this is probably yeah. the, the nicest relationship he's been in. Eventually, he gets a letter from Lolita, who is now 17, and married to a mechanic named Richard Schiller. And she's pregnant. Mm. And she says their life is really difficult. They need money. So Humbert ditches poor Rita, who he never sees again, and drives to see Lolita immediately, ready to kill the husband. He's like, this is the guy who kidnapped her. But then it turns out he's not the guy who kidnapped her. The kidnapper had been Claire Quilty, the author of the play she'd been cast in, the one who had seen a rehearsal and raved about Lolita. Mm. Um, so apparently this old pedo got infatuated with Lolita immediately too. No. Another connoisseur of the nymphette. I guess. If you will. If you yeah. will, which I won't. So Claire, after he, you know, took Lolita, I almost said rescued Lolita, and I'm like, nope, that's not the right word. Took Lolita from the hospital. Out of the frying pan, eh? Yeah. <laughs> so he took her to Hollywood and told her, I can get you auditions in films. But really, as you might suspect, he just wanted to get her into porn. Lolita refused, and Claire Quilty kicked her to the curb. He's like, okay, you, you know, we've, we've had our fling. You won't basically do sex work for me. Bye. Hooray for Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So she eventually meets up with her new husband, Dick, um, who's really sweet, and he didn't know anything about her previous life. And in fact, he thinks that Humber is actually her real dad. So Humber is, he's kind of grossed out by Lolita. He, not just because she's older, but also because he finds her pregnancy disgusting. This is the most tasteless joke I've ever written. Um, Humber is like, ew, yeetus that fetus. Despite his sort of disgust at her, there's still a little bit of an attraction or an affection there. So he tries to blackmail Lolita into sex. You know, she needs the money. Hey, let's go get a hotel, you know, for old time's sake. Or better, let leave your husband. Come back with me. And she's not into the idea. But he gives her four grand anyway with no strings attached. I mean, he did sort of steal her inheritance from her mother, so... I remember this bit thinking, like, what a good guy. But you're right, <laughs> he's not a good guy. <laughs> yeah. So he's like... Right, if you ever need me, I'll be in California, revenging. And then he leaves and he never sees her again. Humbert tracks down Claire Quilty's house, and early one morning he goes there and discovers that the front door is unlocked. He goes straight in and stalks Claire around the house. They end up having a little chat, but Claire's drunk or high or something, and he doesn't quite realise what's happening. Like, he's, they make a point that Claire has gotten really into drugs. Yes. Humbert says he's going to kill him and then does, shooting him several times. And it's a very incompetent killing, isn't it? I'm going to read it. It's quite a long bit, but it's very graphic too. Humbert shot Claire once already, and Claire goes, Ah, that hurts, sir. Enough. That hurts atrociously, my dear fellow. I pray you'd assist. Ah, very painful. <laughs> very painful indeed. His voice trailed off as he reached the landing, but he steadily walked on despite all the lead I'd lodged in his bloated body. He was trudging from room to room, bleeding majestically, trying to find an open window, shaking his head, and still trying to talk me out of murder. I took an aim at his head, and he retired to the master bedroom with a burst of royal purple where his ear had been. So, that's a great bit, isn't it? And Claire, as he's dying, is like, tell cocaine, I love it. Humbert goes downstairs and says, I've just shot Quilty, and all the kind of hanger-on hanger types are there, and they're all kind of stoned or something, and they're like, well, somebody ought to have done it long ago. <laughs> so, Humbert, he goes into shock, basically, over what he's done, tries to make the sort of ham-fisted getaway, but his driving is so erratic that he's located almost immediately and arrested. And then we switch to 
the present day, sort of, where Humber is, you know, in jail and he's back to writing the book. And he says he started writing this book first in the psych ward as part of his therapy. And then he, he switched it to being a bit of a confession for his trial in the hope that this book would show him to be not of sound mind when killing Claire. And I think maybe that might account for some of the unreliable narration mm. as well, because don't forget this is like in part used as like a therapy tool then it transfers into like a legal wrangle yeah. sort of document but then he realizes that ultimately it's a love letter to lolita and he he doesn't want to use it in court after all he only wants it to be published after her death which will of course be many years after his own and that way they'll be united in the afterlife through his art forever romance he comes up with some um other nom de plume doesn't he i just uh, there are in my notes Otto Otto and Mesma Mesma <laughs> and Lamba Lamba. But for some reason, I think my choice expresses the nastiness best. Now, okay, so this is why I advised you at the beginning to go back and reread that first bit of the novel. Get the rewind sound effect music in there. Okay. Please. Because this is something that is stated in that editor's preface to the novel. The editor said, oh, Humbert died of a heart attack soon after writing this book, but before his trial could begin. And hey, here's a list of where are they now characters, which again, means nothing because we didn't know who any of these people are. So we get a, a whole list of all these people we've seen over the book and what they're doing now, you know, the book that we're about to read. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of that list, we get the following, quote, Mrs. Richard F. Schiller died in childbed giving birth to a stillborn girl on Christmas Day, 1952. Mm. So unless you remember that from the preface, you don't know actually what happens to Lolita. And what I, what I think is really interesting is Lolita's name and fate are completely passed over by all the Let's men in this it. book. Yeah. Like even in this list where it's her death, her name isn't even said, just Mrs. Richard F. Schiller. So Lolita only survived Humbert by about six weeks. Oh, happy ending? So, should we have some casting? Yes, please. Okay, so I, I really struggled with this one, but I think I've landed on something that would get the tone perfectly. So this is, it's a really funny book, but it's really messed up in terms of gender and sexuality. There's a really mean-spiritedness to this. So, oh, yeah. this would be good as a Bill Murray late 80s, early 90s comedy. And I want, who would be the best Lolita who was working at that time with a super baby face, but played characters who are often way mature above their years and is very funny. Reese Witherspoon. Okay. She was, if you saw her in Election, she plays kind of a, like a, a go get em oh, I've never seen Election. Lolita. It's very funny. Oh, I should be watching that. She plays a type A Lolita, yeah. basically. And I want, as Claire Quilty, Bobcat Goldthwait. And Bill Murray, like, has that real, like, meanness. Oh, yeah. Especially in those late 80s, early 90s ones. Um... I don't associate him with loquaciousness, though. I think that's the problem. Oh, but he plays films where he's a talker and he's a, you know... Yeah, I'm sure, but... I was imagining somewhere a bit more like effete. Uh, a bit more kind of literary. But I think that's great because he's... There's something sort of virile and almost hunky about Bill Murray, even though if he's like, yeah, I'm very good looking, you'd kind of, Like, that, that has a funny comedy mm, yeah, resonance. Yeah. yeah, okay. No, I know, I, I get it. I'm just... It's, I'm, I'm not surprised, and I, I, I get entirely where you're coming from. I'm just, um, I'm just disappointed, I think. No, no, that's not what I mean. No, I'm just like, 
it's not what I imagined from my humbert, but your humbert is fine too. All all humberts are welcome in my utopia. <laughs> no, that's good. I like that. Oh, f off! You no, do, I do like that. that. No, <laughs> no, you don't. I just really hate the late eighties. I know you do because. You're a puritanical snooze of a man, and I'm sorry that I've subjected you to all of our listeners, so. Uh, and now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. Uh, <laughs> so there's one that's just gif of that pedophile from Family Guy, followed by one star. <laughs> so, helpful, useful. I am down for taking out the peds. Nasty bastards. One star. And you know what, friend? You're not going to get a lot of pushback from me on that. I, I mean, it doesn't tell us anything about the text, but okay. And then my my favorite one, because there's a typo in it, is two, just spelled T-O, too much French, one star. And I was like, friend, if if you're going to complain about the other language, make sure your English is correct. So. Analysis, please. I wanted to talk about Humbert being weirdly obsessed with Lolita's feet and her legs, but he fears her mobility. But he, like, really is mm, into her feet. Yeah, that's cool. The idea of mobility, he's happiest with her when they're traveling around as long as she's trapped in the car. So mm. she's constantly in motion, but she can't go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I also, I can really see the sort of Russian influence. So when we talked about Crime and Punishment, we talked about all the nicknames they have. They love a diminutive. Dolia. And, uh, yeah, her name is Dolores. She mostly goes by Lolita, but he also calls her Dolly, Lola, Lo, and Lolita. But we actually never know what her real name is. What about the pacing in this? Does a lot happen in this book, or does, like, nothing happen in this book? I can't tell. I think that's part of it, right? That it's yeah. a kind of... Humbert's style is very eventful, isn't it? And every, like, the slightest sort of brush of Lolita when he first meets yeah. her, it's kind of turns into sort of rhapsodies over pages. But then also, as you say, they cross America. He, like, crosses America, like, three times or something like yeah. that. And that's just kind of lumped into some kind of prose poem that lists all of the names of the hotels. So, yeah, you're right, there is a kind of playfulness with time. Um, but I was thinking about this is all psychological build-up. There's, there's usually very little, like, relief in this. So the first half of the novel is all the tension and dread leading up to sex. And the second half is that exact same tension, but leading up to some sort of death, mm. and we're not sure whose, or leading up to him getting caught. Also, you just saying that they're on the road reminds me of On the Road, which was written around the same time. And oh, yeah. I wonder if, you know, do people compare the two? I would, but I can't stand On the Road and never made it all the way through. I'm sure some of our listeners would object to that, but I definitely prefer Lolita to On the Road. I, I'm sure there's, well, there's some sort of mid-century ennui yeah. and... What's freedom is anime. It's not yes. ennui, it's anime. They've got this freedom. They've got all this money. Or malaise, yeah. maybe, is the better. you got the mal... The siècle, you got the fin de siècle malaise. Yeah, every, every part of every century, everyone's miserable. What's going on? <laughs> but I still think that that idea you've got the car, you can go wherever you want, but mm -hmm. it's all the same and it's very conformist and dreary. Mm -hmm. And even transgression, either the kind undertaken by the beast mm -hmm. or that undertaken by Humbert, which are very two very different faces of maybe what you could call yeah. it, quite similar transgressions, are kind of ultimately revealed to be destructive or hollow. Well, and it's also that sort of, um, the uh, we're in the period of like high cowboy romanticism, mm. but this is sort of... The West is well and truly one. But the, yeah, exactly. The West is one and now we have all the promise that comes with it, but what we have is so hollow and there are no worlds left to explore and yeah. everything is just shopping malls and diners and yeah it's so it's it's like that sort of like that constant driving to settle but settling is actually horrible yeah 
the strange ordering of the plot. You wanted to say something about that? I thought that was so weird that we put Lolita's fate at the very beginning of the novel when we don't even know who she is going by this other name. Why would you sort of obfuscate what happens to her? Is it because Humbert never found out? Because he died six weeks before her? Mm. Does it make it somehow more hopeful that this poor kid is going to like maybe have a, a good life with Dick? Or does it show that her identity is even further eradicated yeah, in favor that. of like yeah. Humbert's ideal ver- like vision of her? I also wasn't sure if it was, you know, a way to connect her further to Annabelle, who also dies young and off screen. Oh, yeah. yeah. He speaks in untranslated French so much yeah, in this really book. Yeah. It is annoying, but it's also part of building his character. He's pretentious. He keeps the reader at arm's length. Um, so Nabokov is kind of saying like, guys, what if you had to like read a whole book written by that obnoxious guy in your MFA who's trying to impress you. So I think the French stuff, people got really annoyed with it in Goodreads, but part of me kind of wonders if that's the point. This guy yeah. is a wanker. Also, there is that kind of, it's again what we've been talking about, mediation, and that mm-hmm. we are kept at arm's length. And that Nabokov is writing in a foreign language, like not his mother tongue, mm-hmm. which is kind He's of writing impressive. in two foreign languages. He's writing a book in English that then somehow sometimes exactly. has French in it. But there are these all these layers of uh, obfuscation mm-hmm. and stuff, which I think is part of it. When I was reading this, I was like, ooh, yeah, Humbert, he's from the old world, and he's reacting to America in this tacky way. Lolita, she's from the new world, she's young, you know. Ooh, maybe they're a kind of analogy for old world and new. And then in the afterword, this is funny, in the afterword, Nabokov trashes, quote, an otherwise intelligent reader who described Lolita as old Europe debauching young America. So, is that me told? That is you well and truly told. But what about death of the author? I'm allowed to think what I like, am I not? This is a free country, ain't it? Oh, you're allowed to think what you what you like and be wrong. Nabokov is is happy to think what he likes, which is, that's a valid reading, a but a shallow, yeah, you're a basic bitch. I think it's fine. So, let's have some advice then. Hit me. So, we've discussed before in our Pamela episode that actually hating a book is a lot more useful in terms of critical analysis because you having that distance from it allows you to sort of coldly analyze what you don't like, what doesn't work, much more so than if you like a book. It's, it's sometimes a lot harder to analyze why something works for you. And I think the same goes for a book like this, where a lot of people express disgust at reading it. Disgust is really useful to analysis. So what is it precisely that's disgusting to you? Is it the content itself? Is it the way the content is handled? Is it a particular character? a narrator or an author like those those three things are not the same is the author also being satirical with this does the author's personal life have any bearing on what happens here and these are all useful threads to pick apart to help you figure out you know what's going on Mm. in a text next episode clue time please do you have a clue no (laughs) i forgot what the book was for a second so this is a this is a play that gets studied a lot in britain it's set in the Midlands, that's that's where we are, Wait. and it's about the world's worst engagement party. So please write into our email or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Please subscribe, it's just, you know, it helps us out, and it means you, dear listener, never have to miss an episode. I hate it when people say that. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm trying to be, uh, I'm trying to enter into that sort of 50s marketing. Yeah. <laughs> very soft pitch Mm, Um, right and we will see you guys in two weeks never doing a controversial book again hooray Uh, I I mean we got oh god there's a I can already see another sort of pedo one on the (laughs) down the line bloody hell 
Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.